I don't think we can be proud of the achievements to date. I just feel there's so much more to be done. And I will add my voice to many, many others who will continue to campaign in all these areas. hundred years since the vote was won And years before the battle begun Hunger strikes and prison gates The tide is turning, England shakes the wind Dr. Helen Pankhurst, a senior advisor at Care International and great-granddaughter of the suffragette leader Emmeline Pankhurst, also getting a CBE for services to gender equality, which we will be saying congratulations in a moment. Also a writer, academic, women's rights activist and senior advisor to the humanitarian agency Care International, working in the UK and Ethiopia. And thank you for coming in, Helen, for Linda and I, for Women Making Ways. Great to have you here. Real pleasure. Helen, you're a great-grandmother, Emmeline, and your grandmother, Sylvia. How do you think they would feel these days about the state of women's rights? I'll I'll say in the UK, because I know obviously it depends where you are as to the state of of women's rights. But how do you think they'd feel about it these days? Oh, that's such a big question, isn't it? There's so much we could say. I mean, I'm sure they'd have mixed responses to how far we've got. I don't think they'd be saying, yippee, we've we've got it, we've done it all and let's just sit back and enjoy life. Nor would they say nothing has changed. I think they would unpick it to look at which areas of women's lives have changed, which haven't, which women who's benefited more than others, where do we still have to do things? And actually it was that question, what would they think of the world today, that's what prompted me to write the book, Deeds Not Words. And I felt that it was quite useful to unpick it sectorally, so to look at what would they say of how far we'd got in politics, what about in terms of economics and women's financial position, what about in terms of families and the dynamics there, what about issues of culture, violence against women. I think they'd be interested in the details. And talking of the legacies, when did you find that you wanted to pick up their legacy? When was a moment for you? The light, oh, I hate saying that, but it is a light bulb moment, isn't it? Um, no, actually, I think it was more gradual in my case. I was brought up in Ethiopia, uh, which was to do with some of Sylvia's interests after the issue of the vote. And there was very aware of international development issues and poverty. And as soon as you start looking at poverty, you start realising women's particular vulnerability. So those interests were very important to me um, as I grew up. And then I think the more I worked on issues of development and women's rights, the more I felt there was a lot more to be done and the clearer it became to me that I had a voice because of that heritage, because of the Pankhurst surname, and that in particular in the UK. And I'm really interested in both women's rights here in the UK and the global linkages. Your great-grandmother, obviously, Emmeline Pankhurst, she set up the Women's Social Political Union. Now, I get the impression from that 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 sort of part of the women's movement became more focal and a voice for working-class women because 
as opposed to the one that the suffragists used, were taking up. Yes, I think that's true. I think that the suffragists were using constitutional, very traditional methods of lobbying, which involved a certain sector of society, whereas the suffragette movement, the WSPU, formed in 1903 by Emmeline, her daughters and a number of friends, started off uh, with this idea that deeds, not words, were required, that a bit more demands for change rather than quietly constitutionally asking was the approach that was required and very quickly also brought in some working class women, in particular Annie Kenny, the mill girl who became a poster girl in a way for the idea of working class women having a say in all of this. They were also, the Pankhurst family, very much linked to the ILP, the Independent Labour Party. So there was that interest in uh, working class issues over time, it became a lot more complicated. And I think actually it's really interesting to reflect on those schisms that emerge within the movement because, quite frankly, if you put yourself in those positions... So so say you were living over 100 years ago and you were thinking how to campaign on these issues. I mean, how do you do it? Do you just take the voice of some women, those who have more visibility in society, bearing in mind that at the time many men didn't have the vote either? So do you, do you work with the elites within the society and do you then open the door so that other women benefit as well, which is what some people thought? Or do you have to hold on to the idea of sisterhood and actually make sure that the vote is actually for all women, etc., etc. There are many divisions and differences of ideas about how to do this, as they always are with any movement, really. Is there a pressure or expectation on you, because you're a Pankhurst, because the family name is is so widely known, is that a pressure for you? (laughs) I mean, I could have changed my surname on marriage. I could have (laughs) just walked away from it all. But I felt it was so relevant still. And I was so proud of that um, heritage. I wanted to do them justice in a way and to continue... Um, with the voice, um, a pressure, possibly, but one I'm I'm very happy to take on, and it's a mantle I'm really proud of. And maybe as I've become older and as I've got more of my own personal experiences to add to the story with my own research and so on, I feel I have a greater legitimacy in doing just that. It doesn't feel like I'm just piggybacking on their achievements, but more giving voice to what concern them, but also bringing in my own experience. I wouldn't want it any other way. <laughs> but what, what are your concerns these days about the state of women's rights uh, in, in the UK? I've spent a lot of time working internationally, but in the UK studying this issue of what we still need to work on. And again, I, I'd reference the book that I wrote, Deeds Not Words, The Story of Women's Rights Then and Now, because I think that looking at it thematically is quite useful. And actually in the book, I score each chapter as an attempt to really think, is this more of a problem or less of a problem than some other issues? And also unpacking it in terms of which women have more power or more vulnerability on those particular issues. And as you start doing that, I think you realise that there's some areas which are more problematic than others. And I would say that the chapter that scored the lowest was the chapter on violence against women. And that's because although laws have changed and although to some extent at least till, you know, from the 1970s to the millennia, you have quite a few services that were provided, shelters and phone-based support and all sorts of uh, issues like that, a lot of austerity measures have cut back on those direct levels of support And the reality is that women's experiences of violence is still 
very, very concerning. And it's also morphed through things like Twitter and social media and online pornography and so on. So I felt that of all the different areas of women's lives, the one on violence against women was the one that was scoring the least in terms of change and progress. There were others I found really interesting. So, for example, the chapter looking at identity, so looking at women's sense of self and their families and so on, I felt that although with the pill and with sexual reproductive rights improving, women have a lot more choices about their lives, you know, whether to get married or not, whether to have children or not, their sexuality, etc. The arc is much more variable. But there were two areas that particularly concerned me in this chapter. And one is to do with the fact that what women look like is still the dominant issue in society. It's what men say and do, and it's what women look like. And you get that perpetuated at you in so many ways. And we do it ourselves, we perpetuate it. And for me, as long as we have that distinction that it's what women look like that matters first, you know, in the literature, in the music, in the books that we read, in the films that we watch every time, all the time, in the way women talk to each other, in the merchandising, that focus, I think, is majorly problematic. So for me, it has to be about what we say, do and look like for Mm. men and for women. And then there's another area which I think still hasn't changed that much, which is that women are still the primary carers. And I think until that is addressed, until men are also seen as relational in terms of their families, I think we haven't really gone as far as we need to. No, absolutely. Because at that point, professionally, you are limited because you are expected to look after children or potentially expected to look after children. And we come across that time and time again, I think, in our interviews. We do. In fact, I asked my daughter, I was saying that we're going to be meeting you today. I said, there's anything that you would like to ask that you don't have the opportunity. She said, Mum, could you just ask Helen, what could I do? What would be my thing that I could do as an individual, as opposed to all the organisations that do a fantastic job? But what would be for her? That's a lovely question. And I love the fact that she's focusing on herself and not kind of thinking, what do other people need to do? Because I think too quickly we think, okay, well, the government should do this and the employers should do that and all the rest of it. And those are true. We do need to change the institutions around it. But I do think it starts with ourselves and with the area of influence we have around us. So... For your daughter, I don't know, how old is she? She's 23. Okay, the same age as my daughter. I think for for that generation, the world is out there, but it still does need to be changed. So for me, it's about looking at how she lives her lives, whether she calls out the inequality she sees perpetuated by others and by herself. So in the language that she uses, in the investment, say, when she goes to see plays or films and things, what are her choices in terms of promoting women, you know, going to football matches, which are women playing football. By the way, Lewis Football Club, the only one in the world which pays men and women the same amounts, you know, so just just promoting feminism wherever you can and being braver. I think there's something about women being a, a culture that asks us to be more subservient, quieter, more accepting of things. And I think just being braver and calling out and demanding more of herself is really the way forward. Thank you. I think she'll be very pleased when she hears this. (laughs) I think she'll be very well answered. And it's absolutely true, isn't it? If you stand up and be counted as a woman, you're seen as loud and annoying. Yeah, that's right. And men are are seen as, you know, just putting over the point of view. What's been the most important decision you've made in the sense of keeping that legacy, keeping feminism? Because it's quite a few questions, but feminism for me means quality. But yeah. for you, what's been the most successful moment for you? I think actually probably keeping my surname has been important because that's why people find me. 
and the number of women who change their surnames and then friends can't find them, you know, let alone keeping the history of that family, the legacy of the family. And if anybody is doing historical genealogy mm. uh, studies, it's very difficult to find the women because they change their surnames all the time. And what's it saying in terms of ownership and all the rest of it? And the figures, I mean, I'm doing a lot of talks up and down the country and the number of women who put up their hand when I say, did you do the conventional thing in terms of um, changing your name with marriage? And, and the numbers of women that's still doing it is very, very high. Now, I understand sometimes you don't like your surname. Sometimes, you know, there are all sorts of reasons why people might want to change their, their surname. But I just think that the pressure on women to change their surname and the kind of the almost the aghast look that you get from men if they're ever asked to change their surname is saying something. I want to ask you this because you're one of my icons, but for your own table of champions, who's been a champion for you? Yeah, again, in this book, there are so many characters that came out, you know, from each of the chapters. So women who've championed things change in terms of the political sphere. In the economic one, you know, the Dagenham uh, women. There also there was a Wilsdon Green equal pay campaign in 1918. 1918, they were already asking. It was to do with war bonuses and also they they wanted... And this was a depot. This was a, um, a bus depot. You know, just all the hidden women that are still out there that we need to find out more about. And in all spheres of women's activism, they are there. There are also people campaigning on things today that I find pretty impressive. One of the stars that, that I've been working with is somebody called Faiza Faid, who works for the Muslim Women's Network UK. And she is challenging sexism within her own community and Islamophobia within the wider community and how do you balance all of those things you know so I think people who are trying to bring out issues of feminism feminist rights but understanding the complexity and the layers within that I, I have a lot of admiration for obviously very recently Millicent Garrett Fawcett has got a statue in Parliament Square and also very recently Emmeline Pankhurst is now situated in Manchester. Do you think one of the reasons that Pankhurst is not in Parliament Square is because of her radical side to things? Was it more honouring the sort of the peacekeeping demonstrations? Uh, it, it was a complicated story. I mean, partly there already was a statue to Emmeline on the side uh, near the House of Lords, um, which was... Uh, erected there thanks to the work of the Suffragette Fellowship, those people who were involved in the Suffragette movement at the time, and they put the funds together and they did that. So there was a statue there. And I think the idea of having two statues of Emmeline in you know, one small area just wouldn't have worked. But they could have moved the Emmeline statue to be more uh, prominent. prominent. Mm. Um, and I think... It, the question really is why Millicent, not another suffragette, they could have done any of a, any of the other suffragettes. And definitely the suffrage um, image is easier for the government to accept than these kind of radical women who destroyed property and created so much angst as far as the parliament is concerned. Oh. It is an interesting thing, isn't it? Because they're sort of known as rebels or radicals. Thankfully, not the term or the word terrorists. But, uh, you know, if it was brought into the 21st century, they might be called terrorists now. They might. And some people do call them terrorists. To which my answer is, I think we have to admire them and give them credit for actually being willing 
to be extreme. But we also have to look at why they ended up there and the terror that the government was instilling on them. So these were women who were force-fed. These were women who were sexually, physically abused. These were women who were chucked out of meetings because they asked to have a say, because they asked in very quiet ways. They actually asked of the government, when will the government give women the vote and that question was ignored so they started to demand that question and as all other avenues of expression were hived off and stopped they resorted to more and more direct action and ultimately to militancy but you know what kind of terrorists do we know who who haven't killed anybody they never killed anybody whereas they were killed so at least two women including Emmeline's sister were killed as a direct consequence of the actions of the government Yes, they were militant and yes, they destroyed property. But I think we have to understand the wider context of who was terrorising whom. And once we do that, I think it's important to acknowledge that women were saying, why the double standards? Why do we say throughout the ages in history, men have demanded democracy and have used violence? Look at our history books. It's full of that. And why are we saying women can't do that? Their response, well, maybe women do have to do that if Bush comes to shove. But interestingly, they drew the line at killing anybody. They said, we will destroy property, but we won't kill anybody. The film Suffragette, you were an advisor. You also had a cameo role in it as well. Indeed. Were you happy with the way that film turned out? Did you feel it was a really good representation of your understanding of what happened? Yeah, I mean, I love the film. I think it's beautiful. I think it's powerful, you know, let alone the theme of the film. It's only, what, two hours and how you compress the whole story in such a short amount of time. I think it's difficult to do and I think they did it brilliantly. I love the fact that the key characters, Maud, who could be anybody, could be any of us. And I think we go on a journey through her to understand what that politicisation was all about. My main contribution, actually, was at the end when you get the list of the different countries and when women got the vote in the different countries. And I like the fact that that universalises this one story, this one place in the UK where there was the fight, I think, to some extent, having the date of the different countries and when women got the vote in those countries kind of shows you that this is a global campaign. But also, actually, it's so emotional, that film. You need a bit of time to... To reflect, yes. <laughs> is there anything that you hope to achieve for the rest of your working life? Because I know that you're working in this in this area and and, uh, and and with Ethiopia as well and women's rights. The way I'm answering that question is that we have till 2028 the centenary of equal franchise. So we've just celebrated the end of you know 2018, which was the centenary of partial franchise. But women had to wait another 10 years to get the vote on equal grounds with men. Initially, it was only propertyed women or those who are university educated, and there were very few of those at the time, and those over the age of 31 that got the vote. So they had to wait till um, 1928. We have till 2028 to do as much as we can. And I just feel if we, in this remaining period, the nine or ten years that remain, if we can do as much as possible in all these areas of women's lives, politics, economics, women's sense of identity, culture, violence, if we can all keep up the pressure, then by 2028 we can be proud of where we've got to. I don't think we can be proud of the achievements to date. I just feel there's so much more to be done and I will add my voice to many, many others who will continue to campaign in all these areas. And Mr. Trump, the President of the United (laughs) States at the moment, 
would you say he doesn't understand the word feminism? I would put it stronger than that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I would also say it's not just him. If you look at the global leaders around the world, there is the rise of these dinosaurs. And I don't even name them. I just (laughs) call them dinosaurs. And I think they are incredibly dangerous. And we have to fight against it all because they want a return to something that puts women back in the house, that gets rid of their voices and that returns the world to a darker place. Absolutely right, Helen. I couldn't agree more with you. I still cannot understand why many people cannot get on with the word feminist or feminism. Why do you think that is, even though we know that the word means equality? I think some people take the image that those who don't believe in feminism have given to feminism and say, we don't like that image. So it's very easy to give a bad reputation to something and then that something is just frowned upon and people are scared of it. But as far as I'm concerned, feminism is just saying there is gender inequality still and we want to do something about it. It can be through being a sports person. It can be through the music that you sing. It can be through political activism. It can be just in the way you live your life at home. And the first thing you have to do is have the courage to say you're a feminist. If you're even scared of that term because of all the negative hype that other people have put on it, then I think it's difficult to have the courage to actually speak up and and act change, the deeds, not words. It's interesting that the whole concept of, for example, a bra-burning feminist is a media hype. It didn't happen on the key events that people think about, which was in the States. There was one event and a journalist started to talk about bra-burning feminists. They were not burning bras. There was this big bin in which they were putting all sorts of symbols of women's domesticity, including brooms and bras, but there wasn't a burning of bras. And yet, so it's fake news, if you will, uh, more than um, 50 years ago. Now, what isn't fake news is you being honoured with the CBE for your services to gender equality. How amazing is that? Yeah, I'm, I'm, it's, congratulations. Thank you. Thank yes, you. Congratulations. I'm, I'm very I'm glad, very honoured to have that. And also, I know the people who, who worked together to have me nominated. And I really appreciate the sisterhoods that that's entailed and all the people who wrote to support my application. And it's testament to friendship and solidarity to, to be named in that way. And have you been to Buckingham Palace yet? Not yet. Oh, <laughs> so yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah. So what an amazing achievement. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much. A real pleasure. It's lovely to have you. Thank you for asking me to come.